0: We're in Mark chapter 4, growth in the great storm, Mark chapter 4. All right, as we turn to our Bibles, let's pray one more time. Father, thank you so much for your word. Every portion of your word is inspired by God, breathed out literally by God, and is profitable for our lives. Last week, as we looked at the parable of the sower or the soils, you repeated, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And you challenged us, Lord, to look at what kind of soil we are. And there's a lot of good soil in this room right now, Lord. A lot of people who are producing fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. And it's not by might, and it's not by their power. It's by your spirit. Thank you for that, Father. Thank you for the privilege of investing in something that's eternal, something that will last beyond this life. And Father, I pray that as we look at this the rest of these parables and the great storm that faces these disciples early on i pray that you would open our hearts and our ears to what you want to say to us this morning you you're the only one who knows every heart in this room you know what people need you know what you want to say so father i just pray that you would speak now and that indeed we would have ears to hear what you say in jesus name we pray and all god's people said amen, amen. so we just finished the famous parable of the sower and the soils and We know Judas was among the 12, and there were other followers there, but we know 11 of the 12 were good soil. They actually were listening to Jesus. They were on a journey, no doubt, but the seed of the Word of God had gone into receptive soil, and they began to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, If you follow me, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And so Jesus was taking them on a journey, and just because the seed you know, uh, goes into receptive soil, that you all know, that's not the end of the story. There's still much growth to take place. And that's what the Christian life is about. You're born again in a moment by the grace of God through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. But then growth is a process, and the way we grow varies. Sometimes we just grow in normal everyday life, we read our Bible, we step out in faith. But in other times, we grow through storms of life. In fact, maybe that's when we do the biggest growing is when we go through storms and we're stretched in times of storm. And we're gonna see two things this morning that will kind of sum up in a lot of points I'm gonna give you about storms this morning, but we're gonna see growth in uh, some remaining parables and then we're gonna see a great storm that they go into and how that works out. We pick up the story, growth in the great storm in Mark 4, 21. And Jesus was saying to them, a lamp, and this is the definite article, so this could be the lamp is not, Mark 4 21, brought to be put under a peck measure, the NIV says a bowl, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought? The word brought there is a form of erkomai. It really could mean it doesn't come to be, uh, uh, it is not brought to be put on the lampstand. Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? So, With the definite article, and Jesus did talk about these types of things on several occasions, and we know busy speakers sometimes repeat uh, core ideas that they share, but the lamp here could be speaking of Jesus himself with the definite article. We know that we're supposed to be the light of the world, but we have no light unless it's first his light, right? We reflect the light. We're like the moon. He's the sun. We reflect the light of the sun, but here a lamp could speak of Jesus. He called himself in John 8:12 the what? light of the world. And he said, "He who follows me will not walk in darkness; he will have the light of life." If you have Jesus, you have light. And when the light came, if indeed it's correct to think that this is Jesus as secondarily, secondarily believers in Jesus, the light came not to be put under a bed, not to be put under a bushel. The light came to shine, and it shined in the darkness, John chapter 1, but the darkness did not comprehend it. He is the true light coming into the world that enlightens every man. Every man can be, and every woman can be, enlightened by Jesus Christ. And so we put the lamp somewhere where it can do the most good, and that's why Jesus came. He didn't come to hide who he was, he came to influence lives. And that's what the church carries on today. He says, for nothing, 22 is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything anything been secret but that it should come to light. We know that in the time of the harvest or in the time of the end, and this is still harvest imagery here, everything's going to come to light. In fact, in another parable that Jesus shared, he, he shared a parable of the wheat and the tares, another parable. A parable from agriculture. And while, he, while the master slept, an enemy came and sowed tares in the wheat field. And the servants came to the master and they said, should we pull up the tares? And he said, no, leave them. Let them grow together until the time of the harvest. The harvest is going to bring out all the truth. It's going to separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, the true believer from the unbeliever. It's all going to come out in the harvest. And then everything that has been so-called hidden will come to light. And one application of this particular parable, if we go with the fact that Jesus may be here in Mark's gospel, the lamp, then you could think of him as the hidden secret as well. He is God's mystery, if you will, now revealed. He was kind of concealed in the shadows as the servant of Yahweh in the Old Testament and especially in Isaiah, but now He has been revealed to the world. He's been revealed to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Colossians 2, 2 and 3 says that in their hearts, they may be encouraged having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom, or in him, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Would you turn to Colossians 2? It's a little bit to your right. Pass up the Gospels. Keep going right. You're going to turn to Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse 6. Paul picks up this agrarian imagery when he talks to the Colossian church, and he's warning them about not buying into false doctrine and this weird form of Jewish Gnosticism that was leading people astray. He says in Colossians 2, verse 6, after talking about the mystery that is in Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in him, That's 2-3. Look at verse 6. He says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, Colossians 2-7, having been firmly rooted, again, in agricultural image, and now being built up or growing in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, an empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. For in him, in Jesus Christ, how much? All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. When Jesus was moving around the landscape of the Galilee region and Jerusalem and so forth, all the fullness of God was dwelling in him in bodily form. Part of the mystery Of Jesus Christ is this, that when you looked upon him, you were seeing the God-man. You were seeing the incarnation. You were seeing the truth of 100% God, 100% man simultaneously. And this is a little bit of a mystery that we'll talk about a little bit more. And in him, look at verse 10, Colossians 2, you, you and I have been what? We have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. Back to Mark chapter 4. And as Jesus shared these parables, as we saw in Luke 8, he would finish them up by saying, if any man has ears to hear, Mark 4.23, let him hear. This is what Jesus did often in his preaching. He would tell a story, he would reveal a truth, and then he would ask the question, because the truth really has the most relevance if you're willing to open up your ears and your heart. He who is willing to listen, Jesus would say, then let him listen which implies that not everybody was willing. And he was saying to them, Mark four twenty four, take care what you listen to. You could translate this, be careful how you listen. By your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you, and more shall be given you besides. For whoever has 25, to him shall more be given. And whoever does not have even what he has or even seems to have shall be taken away from him. Think of the soils again. The soil that does have will get more. It will increase more and more and more with growth and produce. But he who seems to have something, let's say he is a, one of these soils that is beside the road or uh, among the, the rocks or the thorns, even what he seems to have, he springs up for a while, he looks good, but what he seems to have, even that will be taken away from him. God wants to bless you with more and more growth and more and more influence. And if you are a Christian, that is his desire for you. He's not against you, he is for you. But he is the master of bringing growth into our lives. And he will weave together a tapestry in all of our lives. He will use everything. Uh, He will use all the circumstances of our life and exploit them for his good purposes. That's how majestic he is. But he says, by the way you hear it will be measured back to you. In a parallel way, or in a way that kind of fits with this thought, Jesus said, in the way that you judge, you will be judged. This is the, these are the words of Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Do not judge, lest you be judged. For in the way you judge, it will be ju- you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Now, that famous passage quoted by many unbelievers, the moment you try to say anything to them, They know that verse. Judge not, lest you be judged. And sometimes Christians are stuck because we don't know how to respond to that because we don't keep reading. The actual context of that statement is don't judge in a hypocritical fashion. Jesus says, first, take the log out of your eye because you've been walking around hitting people in the head anyway with that thing. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The passage is not saying don't judge. In fact, once you remove the log, you'll be able to see better to make a good judgment. The passage is teaching don't be a hypocrite. First deal with your own stuff. Then you can tell somebody else about the issues that they might have. And in the way you judge, Jesus says, it will be judged back to you in the measure. Oh, this this is pretty radical. In the way that you judge others, God says, it'll come back to you. That's where where we need to be careful. Amen? How horrible our sins look when someone else is doing them. Hmm. It's pretty easy to be self-righteous when we see what we do in other people. But the same application applies to hearing in the way you hear that same judgment. So, You know, sometimes we get frustrated with people because we don't think that they're hearing us, but the way that we lack in in our own hearing can come back to us as well. And so Jesus is giving warnings after he teaches. He says, hey, open up your ears, focus on your own heart and your own life. And he was saying, verse 26, Mark 4, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. He goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crop, key word, key phrase, by itself. Notice the process. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, with all that Jesus said about the sowing of the seed and those who sow and those who listen, there is a mystery to the kingdom, and it's this, and it goes with seed or plant life. Sometimes things grow, and we have no idea how it happened. <laughs> Anybody got stuff like that in your backyard? You're like, honey, did we have that tree last year? <laughs> and, no, it's, and it's one of the most thriving things in your yard. You say, Do we ever water it? Nope. Where did that thing come from? I don't know. But there's some growth in the kingdom. Here's, I think, Jesus' main point that is mysterious. With all that we can talk about, the sower and the soil, sometimes things just happen and you're like, huh? Sometimes there's growth in unexpected places. How about this? And unexpected people. People we gave up on. And we mailed it in. Now we're going to become a Christian don't no, cast those pearls before that swine anymore. There's a Bible verse for that. And all of a sudden, the swine's a Christian. And they come to you and say, hey, you won't believe what happened to me. What? What? <laughs> I'm a believer. No way. <laughs> yeah. Growth. Sometimes totally mysterious. We've heard reports of people who get visions of Jesus or dream about him, some mysterious stuff that goes on. call this the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's working in all of it, but sometimes it's just beyond what we know. And Jesus said, you know, the wind blows where it will and you don't see it or you can't always chart its course. So are those who are born again of the Holy Spirit. So is the work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's just a mysterious thing. And Jesus, I think, adds this and especially here in Mark's gospel, to tell us that we, don't, we can't figure out all this stuff about salvation and this process. But he tells us, but when the crop permits, 29, he immediately, that is the man who owns the field, puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus' words at the end of verse 29 reflect the Hebrew text of Joel 3.13. Listen to it. I'm gonna quote Joel 3.13-15. through 15. It says, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the wine pressed is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. And this image of the harvest and the sickle and the day of the Lord is how it's going to happen in the end. And the Lord's going to come with ten thousands of his holy ones. And he's going to illumine a darkened sky. And he's going to rescue or rapture his church. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall ever be with the Lord. Therefore, those who have this hope were to comfort one another with these words, with this truth. There's a harvest coming, and in the day of the harvest, there will be a separation. There's going to be a day when we are counted, and the Lord of the harvest knows the wheat from the chaff, and the wheat will go into his father's barn, Matthew 13, and the chaff will be burned, Jesus' words, with unquenchable fire. I would sum up, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And over and over again as Jesus spoke to crowds of thousands of people he would tell these stories and he would use agricultural imagery and he would talk about the harvest and he would talk about the end of the age and Jesus says how shall we picture verse 30 the kingdom of god that's what he came to represent he's the king of the kingdom or by what parable shall we present it it is like a mustard seed mustard seed is the kingdom which When sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil. And by the way, for you Bible students, it was proverbial in Israel, even though the mustard seed is technically not the smallest seed, it was a proverbial saying in Israel among the rabbis that the mustard seed was the smallest one cast upon the soil. In fact, to the human eye, the mustard seed is almost invisible. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom of God to some people seems so insignificant, Jesus seems like nothing. He, he is somebody, by the way, in fact, I'm going to say this uh, before I make this next statement. I think he's someone you can probably try to avoid your whole life, but since it's his, his universe, you're bound to run into him at some point. But here's the point. I think what Jesus is saying is that some people, and here maybe specifically the religious leaders, just want to brush him aside. In fact, they are plotting his death right now. But they don't realize that though in their eyes what he does is a mustard seed, it's going to have a huge impact. We just don't realize the impact that our lives have. And of course, could the people of standing there, the apostles, the religious leaders, have been able to fathom the radical impact that these moments on the planet would make throughout the rest of human history and into eternity? Could they have known how many people were gonna come under the shade of the kingdom of God and believe in Jesus Christ? God took uh, Abram out and he said, look at the stars of the sky, look up. If you can count those, so will your descendants be. And Jesus came from the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And here's the point. The kingdom can seem insignificant to some people, like a mustard seed, but its impact is huge. Jesus says, yet when it is sown, 32, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Here, I think this is a positive image. The kingdom of God becomes a refuge, it becomes a home, it becomes a place to nest, it becomes a place to find uh, belonging, and that is where I've set up my nest, and I think that's where most of you have set up yours. I have found shade in the beauty of his presence. I have found that that mustard seed that went out has bloomed in my own life, in fact, Uh, They say mustard plants can grow sometimes up to 15 feet. The seed looks like it's nothing. But all of a sudden, all kinds of people are benefiting from it. We just had a family up here. And there was a decision to follow Christ by the parents. And now that's being poured into the children. And now they've opened up their house to somebody else. And their branches go out. And I ask you, who do you want to be? What kind of influence do you want to leave? One of faith? One of leading other people to faith in Jesus Christ? I mean, let's look at a news report recently. We know Prince all of a sudden died. 57 years old. A lot of us grew up with Prince's music. Whatever your take on his music doesn't really matter for this purpose. But you hear reports and you see videos and you see a lifestyle that seems so worldly. And yet at the same time, he talked about having faith. And he talked about the fact that he prayed. I don't know anything about his belief system, but you look at a life and now that life is gone. And we all have an influence. We all have branches that go out into this world. And the question we have to ask consistently is what are they doing? What are they producing? And with many such parables, 33. So this tells us that Mark didn't record them all. Each gospel writer, I think, picked what the Holy Spirit led them to highlight. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them as they were able to hear it. That could imply that he was speaking on their level. And he did not speak to them without a parable. But he was explaining the idea of the language here is the to untie a knot. Sometimes the disciples Maybe metaphorically, were in knots. They were trying to figure out what he was saying. Then he would untie the knot. It's kind of good when you have someone who can explain a difficult concept to you and untie that knot that's been in your brain. And you're like, "Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm not good at untying knots, but I usually hand them to my wife, and she's got fingernails and everything." And so uh, Jesus was explaining these parables. He would untie the knot and he would explain everything end of 34 privately to his own disciples. And on that day, 35, now the text transitions from the growth to the great storm. When evening had come, so it was nighttime, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. And just so you know, the other side of the lake, the northwestern part of the lake, was called the Decapolis. And it was known to be or the 10 cities, these were Greek cities. They were set up with Hellenism. Hellenism was the belief of the ancient Greeks spilled over from Alexander the Great and his influence. And Hellenism, to very much simplify the belief system, said man is the center of everything. Sound familiar? The sacred animal in these cities on the other side of the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Gennesaret, as it was also known, in these cities... The sacred animal was the pig. And Jesus says, let's go over there where there's Greek pagan cities where the sacred animal is the pig. And by the way, the religious leaders believe that that's where Satan lived on the other side of the lake. If you're a disciple, you have to be thinking, what? He has ears to hear, let him <laughs> What? <laughs> you want to go over there? You want to go over where the... The pagan worship happens where all that stuff is going on. Yeah, Jesus says. We haven't accomplished quite enough today. I mean, think about his schedule, right? Let's go over to the other side. And so the Sea of Galilee. Terry, if you are ready, here's a, a photo of the sea from an aerial shot. Beautiful sheet of water, probably the most sacred sheet of water on the planet. And go, keep going, Terry, to the next one. Here is a sunset on the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful place. I took a boat ride out there in 2006. It was a wonderful time out there. One more, Terry, if you would. And here's a, just a beautiful sunrise on the Sea of Galilee. And so this particular body of water is about 13 miles long and is about seven miles wide. And so this is where most of Jesus's ministry took place. Let's go back to the, the sermon slide, if you would, Terry. And so on on one uh, one of those days, or in fact, Mark says, on the day when all these growth parables were being told by Jesus, Jesus says, hey, boys, let's go over to the other side. Let's go over to this dark side of the lake. And there wasn't just one boat, by the way. We sometimes think of this story, and it's familiar to a lot of us, that it was just a single boat. It wasn't. It says, leaving the multitude, and remember, he had been preaching to them from the boat, and they were all on the seashore, They took him along, Jesus along with them. That's always good to do. Just as he was in the boat, and notice, other boats were with him. So there was a little mini fleet that took off that night. Destination, other side of the lake. Jesus says, let's go to the other side. Let's go to that place of darkness. Let's go to that place where they say Baal dominates, where Beelzebub's power dominates is on display. Go to Matthew for a second. One book back. Parallel text, chapter 8. Matthew 8. we got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look at Matthew 8. Look at 16. And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, Matthew 8, 16, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. 17. In order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying... He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, Matthew eight eighteen, he gave orders to depart to the other side. And a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has nowhere to lay his head. I saw a faith teacher on television was trying to convince his congregation that the health and wealth prosperity gospel is actually biblical, he said these words, I'm watching television in my living room. Often when I am in profound disagreement with what's happening on the screen, I begin to speak to my television screen. I don't know if any of you do this. I usually do this when my favorite team is losing and I think I'm a better coach than the one coaching the team. So he's on the television and he says, I'm going to prove to you, you know, all these Christians say the son of man had nowhere to lay his head, foxes have holes. I'm going to prove to you that that wasn't true. And he goes over to this account that we're going to look at in a moment. And Jesus is in the boat, and there's a storm, and he's laying on a pillow. You see, said the faith teacher, Jesus did have a pillow. And that means that you and I should be rich. More specifically, it means I should be rich, and you should be giving more to my ministry. And I'm yelling at the TV, and here's why. Because even the pillow that was in the boat, if you study this passage, did not belong to Jesus. It was the pillow for the one who steered the ship. And they would leave it there just in case you weren't involved in ship, in the, the fishing on the ship, and you could use it. Even the pillow wasn't his. This is some of the nonsense that's out there today to try to prove a particular point of view. And so another disciple said to him, 21, Matthew 8, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And the idea here is let me wait until he gets old and then he dies. And Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Now, back to Mark, Luke's gospel, Luke eight twenty-three shares these words, if you go back to Mark chapter 4. As they were sailing, Jesus fell asleep. So somewhere as they set out with this mini fleet of boats, I'm sure it was a beautiful, serene scene on the Sea of Galilee. I'm sure the water was calm at this point. The little mini fleet, almost like a parade on the water, took off. It was nighttime. The sun had set. And Jesus finally, finally gets to sleep. We've been talking in previous messages about his schedule, right? He knows what it means to be stressed out. He knows what it means to have to, you know, so many demands upon him. He couldn't even eat a meal. There were so many people trying to get at him. And finally, as the boat takes off, he finds this helmsman's pillow, and he says, boys, here's, here's, here's the God-man. I need to sleep. And so he begins to sleep. Mark 8.23 says, as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. Yes, he did sleep. He was 100% man and 100% God. He got tired. So many demands were on him, and finally he says, I need to sleep. And as he began to sleep, a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. That was um, Luke 8.23. Here's Mark picking up the story. Finally, he gets a moment where he can rest, but not for long. Have you ever been there before? You... You finally get a chance to lay your head on the pillow, and all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. And you're like, finally, okay, I can rest now. Ding dong, everything's going off. Cell phone, all the devices in your life that you now want to throw away are ringing. Dogs are carrying away your children. You're like, I don't care, take them. You know, you're just gone. He finally gets a chance to sleep, just for a moment. And there arose, Mark four thirty seven a fierce gale of wind. New King James ESV says, A great windstorm, and the waves were breaking over the boat, just when you try to rest. In the Jewish mind, the sea, especially at night, its unpredictability, its waves, its sudden storms, was a picture of evil, even the power of Satan. And by the way, In a lot of the paganism that was on the other side of the lake, they believed that Baal, which is kind of a type of Satan, had power over the wind and the storm and the lightning and the rain. That's why ancient cultures sometimes tried to appease Baal because they thought if they did that he would send them crops and blessing and rain, and they needed it desperately. So he's supposed to control this. So isn't this interesting timing? Hmm. The Messiah finally gets a chance to lay his head down and rest. And all of a sudden, this huge storm. If you uh, go and you Google uh, storms on the Sea of Galilee, you're not going to find much footage of pictures with big waves because they mostly happen at night. And they happen because of the topography of the land. What happens is the sea is about 700 feet below sea level, and hills rush up about two to 3,000 feet all around the lake. So it gets cold on top of the hills, but it's tropical at sea level. In fact, they grow bananas all, all around the sea. It's very tropical. So what happens is it gets cold on the top of the hills, and when the cold air begins to travel down the caverns of the hills, it hits the warm seawater, and sometimes there are unexpected storms on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, in 1992... They had waves on the Sea of Galilee that were over 10 feet high. By the way, this is a freshwater body of water. It's not not a a sea of salt, if you will, but it's big enough where sometimes it's called a sea as well. And waves were breaking in 1992, uh, crashing so violently that it destroyed areas of the city of Tiberias right there on the coast. So this does happen. They say, in fact, this sea is notorious for these types of storms. And all of a sudden, there's this fierce gale of wind, great windstorm. The waves were breaking over the boat. The imperfect tense of the language is they repeatedly crashed into the boat, so much so that the boat was already filling up with water. Ever had that sinking feeling? (laughs) Here you are. I told him. What is he saying? Go over to the other side with the power of that evil. And uh, we knew it. You ever been there before? We knew it. <laughs> Monday morning quarterback. I told you we shouldn't have gone tonight. And what's he doing? Sleeping. We're in trouble here, Lord. You ever had that feeling before? Lord, are you awake up there? Hello? Behold, there, Matthew 8:24. arose a great storm, Literally a seismos, where we get the idea of seismology or the measuring of earthquakes. There was a great shaking in the sea. Matthew 8:24 so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he himself was asleep. In Matthew's picture here, it pictures the Sea of Galilee shaking. And here's this fleet of boats, not just one boat, and they're all just in deep trouble. The waves are breaking over the boat, and maybe it's satanic power behind it. And he himself was in the stern, 38, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, now, I don't know what this looked like. I don't know if there was a little dialogue at first. You want to wake him up? I don't know, should we? He hasn't slept in days. Maybe it was Peter. Since Peter's thoughts are behind the gospel of Mark, I just guess it was Peter. Lord! And hopefully he wasn't, You know, hard to wake up like a teenager on a school day. Can I get a witness? (laughs) Does anything wake you up? (laughs) This is a time for emergency prayer. And it's pretty cool that Jesus is on the boat. Lord, wake up. Notice the words. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You could render this Teacher, Are we to drown for all you care? He's demonstrated nothing but care, nothing but love. But now, in a moment of crisis, have you ever been there before? The Lord's done all this great stuff for you, and then you have a storm, and it's blowing a little, and He's not responding as quickly. And you're like Lord, don't you? care Look, we've all been there before life doesn't always make sense and there's a remarkable storm have you ever had a friend who can sleep at a moment's notice sleep on airplanes sleep while they're driving the car (laughs) you have to basically try to slap them or have a water bottle right next to their face you guys have heard the guy that says you know When I die, I prefer to die in my sleep like my grandfather did, not like the rest of the screaming passengers in his back seat. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Don't you care that we're perishing here, Lord? The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son." that whoever believes in him will not perish. Don't Don't you think there's a lot of people asking this question? Have you seen the stormy conditions down here, Lord? I don't know if you know what's going on on the lake, but we got trouble. We got problems. I think a lot of people ask, do you care? They knew very well this lake. They fished on it, many of them their whole lives. One writer says, contrary to public-held views on the matter, it is usually the experts who recognize the need to panic. Close quote. (laughs) When you see the experts panicking, that's when it's time to panic. When they're not saying, hey, it's going to be all right. (laughs) That's time to wake up Jesus. No matter what you might get. And so storms become quite a picture. Storms become an opportunity for spiritual growth In fact, if it was Peter that woke him up and asked this question on behalf of the others, Lord, don't you care that we are perishing? In a later story, it will be Peter who actually steps out of the boat in a storm and has faith. And that's part of what storms are about. They're about growth. They're about the next time they come. Instead of doing the same thing that you've always done before when God's come through for you or at least shown you his glory in some remarkable way, how about the next time you have a storm, you don't repeat the same mistakes that you made before and the same accusations that you threw up at God? Psalm 44, 23, 26 says, If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But for thy sake we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Arouse thyself. Why dost thou sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. Why dost thou hide thy face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up and be our help. Redeem us for the sake of thy loving kindness. Psalm 44, 20 through 26. I read one writer who said, Lord, let me meet you in the storm. Let me rise on the heights of a wave to meet you somewhere above the storm. And being aroused, 39, so Jesus is woken. We don't know how long it took, but he is aroused. He wakes up and notice what he does. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush! I take it as Jesus just woke up and he didn't want to be bothered again. Well, I've been there before, right? Quiet! <laughs> Trying to get some sleep here. Well, we didn't say it to the ocean or to the lake. Jesus says, hush, be still. And the wind died down. And it became perfectly calm. Terry, would you go to the next sermon slide? Uh, and then I think, Brenda, did you have one more up there? There's one with a calm, serene picture. I want to leave people with that. Maybe you can find it. Anyway. All of a sudden, he quiets, he hushes the storm and the winds, just like Mark one twenty five, he said, be quiet to the uh, demon and come out of him. Be muzzled is the idea. Can you imagine if you were with a person and things were getting a little out of control on the boat and all of a sudden that person said, quiet! (laughs) Would you start to ask some questions about who this person is? Job twenty-six fourteen says he quieted the sea with his power. By his understanding he shattered Rahab. Psalm one oh seven twenty-nine says he caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Jonah one verse fourteen says, Then they called on the Lord and they said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Uh, That's Jonah. And do not put innocent blood on us, for thou, O Lord, has done as thou hast pleased. And they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. We can think of the Red Sea, when God opened the sea and then closed it on the Egyptian army. The one who has power over the sea is God, and God alone. Here you can see kind of a neat coming together of his incarnation, His humanity, he has to rest and sleep, but his deity, he can tell the sea to be quiet, and it listens. Oh, for that power, just for one afternoon. Wouldn't that be cool? Anyway, just a dream. (laughs) And he said to them, Why are you so timid, 40? How is it that you have no faith? Now, in moments like this, when I'm reading my Bible, I say something like this. This is an honest take. Lord, what did you want him to do? (laughs) What do you think he expected of them? I mean, Jesus had said, let's go to the other side, so that was enough. They knew they were going to make it if they were trusting him, but they probably lacked trust. And I'm not sure all that he expected of them, but he expected more faith than this. Do you think sometimes he looks at us in things that are maybe a lot smaller than this scene and says, how is it that you have no faith? How long have you been doing this? How long have you been walking with me? How is it that you, you have no faith? I told you we're going to the other side. I told you we're going to, find our destination, and they became very much afraid, and they said to one another, who then is this? New King James says, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? And I think when Mark was writing this, and these are Peter's thoughts behind Mark's gospel, I think he's asking the readers right now to pause and say, who can this be? that even the wind and the waves obey him or he who has ears to hear let him hear seven things on storms you may have to go back and get the recording and we're done what is the lesson of the calming of the storm what's the truth to be unveiled before us are you storm tossed are you seasick <laughs> Seven things. One, storms simplify life. They often get your focus on the most important things like survival and strength from God. One, storms simplify life, don't they? I mean, you can be worrying about 25 things, but when a storm comes, all of a sudden, there's only really a few things that matter. And storms have a way of kind of bringing life down to its most simplest uh, form, and that can be good too. They make you appreciate the calm days more. Amen. Storm comes and you're like, where did that come from? And Maybe you've been used to a lot of calm days and and a storm comes and then it calms down again and you're like, you're a more thankful person. Three, storms get you to look beyond and above yourself. When you don't have control, even when you're an expert fisherman on the Sea of Galilee and all of a sudden, this is too big for you. Sometimes storms cause you to look above yourself, and that can be good. Four, storms show us God's presence and provision and promises and become our anchor in the storm. We often see God show up in unexpected ways. His presence, his provision, and his promises become more precious to us. Five, when a Christian goes through storms, trials, and temptations, his or her testimony is expanded and matured. God stretches us in storms, but not just for ourselves, but that we might impact other people. Six, we can be confident that even when we go through storms in life, he will get us to the other side. And in this case, I'll use the metaphor, we're gonna make it to heaven if we're Christians. We're gonna see our loved ones again who died in the Lord. We're gonna make it. He's gonna bring us safely home into that heavenly kingdom. And seven, Great growth often happens in great storms. This is where we meet our God in deeper ways. Would you bow with me? Father, we just want to say thank you, first of all, for this morning that we've had together. Thank you for the Bible that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you that it is living and powerful, and thank you that it reveals the one who is the living one, who has power over everything, every storm we face, Sometimes you allow us to go through more of them. Sometimes you calm them. But you are master above the storm. There are precious people, Lord, in this room right now that are in the middle of a storm. Some of them are just coming out of one. Some of them are asking some deep questions. And I pray that you'd meet them, meet each of them where they are and show them the deeper ways of God. Show me your deeper ways, Lord. Show me that you are the master of the universe and the master of my life and even my problems and challenges. Let us go deeper as a congregation with you, Lord. Let us not settle for just riding on the surface. Let us meet you in the deep places so we can become more effective so the branches of our lives can spread out so that we can be a shade to others and we can shine your light to others. With your head and heart bowed, if you've not met Jesus Christ It's a sad picture, but the storm is going to come of judgment one day, and you're going to fall under that storm, but the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus took the storm or the flood of God's judgment for you. This same one who calmed the sea took God's wrath, the flood of judgment at the cross, and rose from the dead, and you must meet him to be saved and to make it to the other side. So if you're listening I would ask you, do you have ears to hear what the Spirit says? Do you want your heart to be good soiled? Do you want to say, Lord, yes. I don't understand it all, but I'm gonna follow you. I know enough to say there's nobody else I want in my boat than you. We'll just cry out to him. The, the Bible teaches faith, repentance and faith. You must believe in who Jesus is, the God-man, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, trust in him now. Just say, Lord, I believe. I turn from my sin. I put my faith in you in you alone. Please save me. Save me from the storm of judgment. Be my rock. Be my salvation. Be my God. Maybe you need to rededicate your life with that same mindset of your heart bowed before the Lord. Just say, Lord, I'm tired of running. I feel like Jonah, I've created maybe my own storm here and you've stirred up the waters of my life, but I think you're trying to tell me to come home. You don't have to have a perfect prayer, but just tell him that you want to follow him again in new and fresh ways. And Father, for this precious congregation, may you bless them, may you keep them, may your beautiful light shine upon them and give them peace and strength. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Before we start this last song, um, Christian art uh, way back in the day in mosaics and frescoes that were discovered pictured this scene on the sea, and it showed a boat going through a storm, and the boat was an image of the church going through the world, and it shows Jesus depicts him on the boat with the church, so that no matter what storm's church has faced throughout the two millennia that the church has now existed. Jesus is in our boat. Amen. He's for us. And if he's for us, who can be against us? Would you stand?